Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. It's Thursday, April 23rd, and we are talking energy. Uh, Jason Hall is my guest today. Jason, what's going on? Um, uh, pandemonium, my friend. Pandemonium. Um, yeah, it, seems like, it seems like every week on this show we're talking about something that either hasn't happened before or hasn't happened since you know my grandfather uh, was, a little, was a little kid. And I think we have another one of those this week with oil going negative on Monday for the first time ever. Well, and not to and not to leave the the the, the baby boomers out. Um, uh, gasoline consumption just hit Vietnam War era levels in the U.S. Yeah, so so wild wild things going on in the energy market. We're going to be talking about all that stuff today. First off, to just to lead the show off and kind of level set us, Tom Jones writes in from Davis, California, and asks, says, "Hi, folks. I love the show." Will you explain how the USO ETF is affected by the price of crude oil futures? May oil futures traded below zero on Monday, while USO hit new lows. How should one think about investing in USO? Is it reasonable to expect the price of USO and oil and oil prices will rebound eventually? So obviously, there's a lot packed into that question, Jason. But but first off, uh, the the whole dynamic of oil futures and how they affect the the price that we see uh, quoted of oil in the market. I think that's a really important one, and that was behind this crazy sell-off uh, that we saw in that May contract on Monday, where prices fell from just below twenty dollars a barrel all the way to almost minus forty dollars a barrel uh, over the course of the day. What happened there, Jason? The sell-off turned into a payoff, right? I mean, that's essentially what happened. So let's talk about the mechanics of of oil futures, commodity futures. Uh, these are contracts that if you hold the if you if you're the if you hold the contract uh, at the at the at the end of the contract date, then you're on the hook to take physical possession of that good. So in this case, uh, we're talking about West Texas Intermediate oil futures for early May delivery in Cushing, Oklahoma. Um, and the short version is uh, because oil demand has cre- cratered so much. And we'll talk more about that. Um, and at the same time, oil production has been far slower to, to, to respond. Producers just haven't been able to cut nearly quickly enough. Uh, that f- the facilities around Cushing where their oil can be stored are basically going to be filled up by mid-May um, or either under, under contract uh, for, for storage. So um, uh, a bunch of traders were left holding, holding uh, contracts and no access to storage. Uh, and it got to a point where uh, the only choice, as, as uh, the trading day was coming close to ending, was to pay others to take those contracts to take delivery of the oil. And I think we hit like $38 a barrel at some point to the negative, where traders were paying somebody else $38 to take the oil um, in May. And uh, how it ties to USO, uh, this ETF, uh, is important because U- USO's goal, what, what it tries to do is it tries to mimic uh, the price of U.S. oil, it tries to f- follow uh, the daily spot price of oil. Um, and historically, um, in normal markets, um, it's able to do that pretty closely using the futures market, trading futures, because they reflect the spot price relatively well. 
Um, but this is one of those weird cases where futures weren't able to do that. And a few of the things that I've seen out there was that USO, this fund, because investor, so much investor capital has flowed into it with the idea that oil was going to rebound, and they've invested that capital into, into futures. Um, they were left holding like 25% of those contracts um, on Monday and um, cost them a tremendous amount of money to exit, to roll those contracts. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's it. So our colleague Matt DeLalo uh, wrote up a pretty good piece, I think yesterday it published. Um, maybe we can try and get that in, maybe the transcript, we can try and get that the link to that article in there. But the short version is uh, USO is, is, is kind of stopping taking on new contracts. Um, and, um, it, I mean, it honestly, it could cause the, 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 the fund to fold. I think there's another fund out there that's, 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 uh, wrapping up, um, at the end of the month and they're going to, uh, liquidate the fund. Um, so I don't think this is necessarily a good way to try to, because there's still going to be so much more volatility and it's going to be, uh, the fund has essentially said, look, we can't, we can't do what we do to, 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 to track the oil prices right now. It just doesn't work because the way the market's. Uh, the way the market's responding, um, I, I don't think you can. Yeah, eventually, yes, oil prices are going to rebound. It's going to happen. Eventually, parity is going to return. Economic activity is going to increase. Oil consumption is going to going to grow. Um, but USO, I just uh, sadly, I don't think is a, is a, is a vehicle to 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 capture that. Nick, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on you know the investability of USO as an asset. Just to kind of kind of tie off. Uh, uh, some of the things that Jason said. Uh, so, so the reason all this came to a head on Monday is the way these futures contracts work is they, they trade back and forth, but there's a certain day, and in this case, I believe it was Tuesday, where if you're if you are holding the contract after that date, you have to be willing to accept delivery um, of oil at Cushing, Oklahoma, uh, when the contract comes due in May. And in this case, for for the May contract, that the date where that was where that was taking place uh, was the beginning of this week, and so you had lots of people who just weren't going to be in a position to accept this oil, and had to get out of their contracts. USO is one of these these companies, you, you, uh, one of these these entities. You mentioned how they have to roll their contracts from month to month. Historically, they'll they'll they will um, they will buy um, a, a a futures contract. Hold it for a period of time, and then as the month comes to an end, they will sell that futures contract and then buy. So in this case, they would sell the May contract and then buy the June contract in order to track uh, the movement of oil. And in a typical oil market, that works fine. However, in the market that we're in today, it's known as a contango market, where the futures price of oil is higher than the spot price of oil today. When you when USA rolls those contracts, they are structurally designed to lose money. They will buy a June contract. Uh, that is significantly higher uh, than the May contract they're selling. And so every time they roll uh, those contracts, they're going to lose money as, as long as the market is in contango. And that, it, that and these contango markets take place when there is this massive oversupply. There's really no demand for oil today, but demand will be higher uh, in the future. And in, the, in these markets, these, uh, these types of uh, ETF funds Really are structurally in a position where they can't track the market. I think in 2008, 2009, they got themselves into a similar situation, were able to make it through. I would say, just generally across the board, whether it's USO or really any of these ETFs that purport to track uh, some type of derivative product, whether USO is, is is trying to use futures, which are derivative product, to track oil, or if you remember a few years back, XIV, which was using VIX contracts to, to try to uh, you know, pr produce an inverse of the, vi the VIX. 
um, uh, index. This is volatility index volatility. for folks to know. Yep. Indeed, yeah, and so either of these, where they're, where they're, the underlying product is really derivatives, I think are very dangerous for investors to own and really put, put you in a position uh, where you can lose some money pretty quickly. Uh, so so I, I would say, I would echo Jason's point of, of I, I would not, under any circumstances, but particularly uh, when we're in this super contango market we're in right now, uh, USO and any of these kind of oil-related uh, ETFs that try to track the price of crude oil aren't, are just structurally in a position where where they're not going to uh, going to perform well, given uh, the way that the that uh, that fund is structured. Right, right, exactly, exactly. That's the thing. I mean, it's not like you're not you're not they're not just pegging to the price of oil, and oil goes up, and that means that the price goes up, and that means you make money. The way that they have to get there is so complex and so value destroying in this kind of environment. Yeah, don't. Yeah, just just let's let's stay away. And the managers of the fund have taken a number of steps uh, this week to try to adjust uh, the way they're they're, they're holding, so so it's less easy uh, for these sorts of, of kind of uh, carry on effects to take place. So so they have pushed out further onto the futures curve of the contracts that they hold, uh, because what happens as well is every you know every oil trader in the market is aware of the mandate. Of this USO fund and when they're going to have to roll their contracts, and that they represent such a such a massive subset of the overall uh, holdings uh, of these futures contracts, and so people can front run uh, USO and these other funds to try to gain what's going on in the system and make some make some cash, and people do do that. Um, and in this environment, um, that USO has tried to try to take steps to better track the uh, the returns of you know oil that they're trying to trying to track and prevent. Other traders from being able to exploit the way the fund has to have to operate itself, uh, you know, to, to generate some profits uh, for themselves. So, it, it really complicated what, what's going on here. Oil will come back over time. I just don't know that there's a really exciting way, at least through these ETFs, uh, to invest in that bounce back. And even even if we wanted to, Jason, maybe gets maybe gets your thoughts here. Is we don't know, you know, say say the economy reopens, we don't know when demand comes back. So even if everything reopens, we don't know when this this uh, oversupply situation could be corrected. Well, that's I mean that's the thing, right? So let's talk about um, you know, we talk about that, and I think what you have to remember is that this massive imbalance is going to have substantial carry on effects, right? You, you know, the 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 economic recovery is going to happen far sooner than the oil market recovery. Uh, because of the, the the massive amounts of oil that are still being produced above and beyond uh, what the market's able to consume. I mean, here we are, we're, it's April 23rd. Uh, we know global oil demand is down probably 30 million barrels per day right now, maybe, maybe more, uh, but somewhere that's a good kind of a middle target. And I mean, for context, um, that's all the oil produced by the three largest global oil-producing countries in the world combined, right? That's the U.S., that's Saudi Arabia, that's um, Russia. You take the combined production, and uh, we're essentially down what what those companies, those those countries produced uh, on a given day uh, last year, right? So, I mean, that's that's how that's how massive this this destruction is, and structurally, you know, a massive industry with its its it's truly, I mean, it's picks and shovels and pipes and and pumps and drills. It's not built to absorb those kinds of shocks. It just can't. It can't. You know, this is a massive, you know, 18-wheeler with a full load um, hitting an icy road at 80 miles an hour. It can't slow down quickly enough. It just can't. So, so that's so that's the challenge, right? So here we are. I guess the point is that here we are, April 23rd, still producing 
you know, far more oil than we're consuming. And the big landmark $10 million, 10 million barrels per day cut uh, that was announced, what, a week, week and a half ago now? It's still a week away from kicking in. It's still, it's still going to be May 1st before uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, Canada, some of these other the, the big players, UAE, that, that have announced cuts before they're even on the hook to make those cuts. So, I mean, we're still in a position of, of ma- massive overproduction. Uh, so, the, long story short, I mean, there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of millions of barrels of oil um, sitting in storage that are going to be sold into the markets uh, as economic activity increases and oil consumption increases before any of that demand starts showing up in the oil fields, before the producers can can benefit from it, before the oil field services companies that do the work in the oil fields, before they can benefit from it. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you went in early as a, as a buyer and you bought oil and you've got it sitting in a tanker, you know, you know, somewhere in the off the Gulf of Mexico, and you're waiting for the market to recover. I guarantee you're going to be willing to undercut um, any producer in the Permian what they're going to try to get for oil um, out of the ground to get that oil out of that tanker that you're having to pay for storage. So, so again, that just further delays the economic recovery for a massive, massive section of the oil and gas industry you know, anywhere from six months to a year behind the rest of the economy. It's just going to take a long time to work through all this oil. Right. I mean, everybody's talking about the, re- the reason the oil price collapsed so much on Monday. It is probably going to see, maybe not as extreme, but a, a similar uh, uh, sell-off as, as the June contract comes due, uh, is that there's, there's literally all the, the physical storage space we have available is full. So that means we have all, the, you know, we have to use up that oil in the tanks before we can start producing oil to, to, to fill things fill things up. And then in addition to our, our on-land storage, there's a significant amount of oil that's going to be put on tankers. Uh, as you mentioned, Jason, I saw, I saw one quote uh, from, from an executive at the, at the IEA who said that up to 15% of the total, of total tanker uh, capacity could be made available for floating storage, which would be about 320 million barrels of oil. The previous peak was in 2009, which is around 100 million barrels of crude. So this is 3x uh, the 2009 high that's going to be put in these tankers. Um, and, and so this is additional supply uh, that needs to come off the market um, uh, before before we can you know re- resume previous uh, levels of production. And but you know as there has been declines uh, in the available storage uh, because because these tanker owners control a, a small uh, you know a control this really essential supply. The only place you can put this oil tanker rates are through the roof uh, in the past in the past month or so. So I saw some stats of for VLCC agents, very large crude carriers. Around one hundred fifty thousand dollars a these day. Are, these are the vessels that rate. can. These are the vessels that can hold about two million barrels of oil. Yes, exactly. And so, th- so these these very large crew carriers are now uh, having daily day rates for about one hundred fifty thousand dollars a day. You compare that with a year ago. This is a very seasonal industry. Rates go up and down uh, throughout the year. But you compare that with with a year ago, April two thousand nineteen, rates at about ten thousand dollars a day. So fifteen x year over year the rates that, that people are willing to pay uh, for this this energy storage. And that's that's part of why. Uh, oil prices are going down so much in that uh, you don't have an end consumer for this oil, so you have to bake in the storage price. As a purchaser, you have to bake in the price that it will cost you to store this oil let me, into how much you're willing to pay, and that's driven up, uh, driven down oil prices and driven up uh, the, t- the tanker rates. Let me take let me take that that those big giant numbers and convert them into something people can understand. Uh, 150 grand a day to store two million barrels of oil. That's about two dollars and twenty five cents a month per barrel of oil. 
that it puts you, that you have to add into your cost to, to profit. So if you keep that oil in a tanker for five months, there's $10 a barrel right there. So, you know, these, these numbers can have a meaningful impact in, in what it, what it caught, what it takes to, to make money. So, so I think that's, you know, so you see that's, that's the material impact that all this oil has. Yesterday, the uh, IEA, it's the U.S. Energy, or EA, EIA, U.S. Energy Information Administration, uh, released the, uh, its weekly petroleum sta- uh, status report. And uh, I think the total commercial crude inventories were just a share, just a shade under 519 million barrels. That's about another bad week away from the peak that was in commercial storage, which was actually set in 2017. Um, but that again, that number that doesn't include any of the oil that they're talking about. You know, that couple hundred million barrels going into these tanker ships, and it also doesn't include the 50 to 80 million barrels that could get leased in the strategic petroleum reserve, right? That's not part of commercial storage. So if you really start looking at the whole bucket, we're already above and beyond any level of oil and storage um, that, that we've ever seen in the U.S. Um, and the problem's getting bad around the world too. So um, not to belabor the point anymore, but the point is that the economic recovery um, yeah. is going to happen far before the oil recovery because there is just so much oil uh, that's still that's still in the market, right? I mean, you mentioned you mentioned you know gas, uh, you know earlier how we've had the most uh, demand destruction in gasoline since 1968. That's about 45 uh, percent of total U.S. petroleum demand. You get another nine or 10 percent from jet fuel. So until we start flying planes again and using up our, our supplies of that, uh, there, there's going to be oversupply there. Distillate fuel oil, which is you're looking at things like uh, like like diesel, that sort of thing. All these jet things are dependent yep. uh, are dependent on economic activity, us resuming trade, travel, all those sorts of things. And we're building up all this supply now. And when we resume production, it will take some time uh, to, to, to use up that supply. I, I think one of the things a lot of people think about, Jason, maybe you have some thoughts on this is, okay, well, well, crude oil prices are, are so low. Therefore, people who use crude oil as their inputs have got to be in a great position, right? I mean, these refiners who use crude oil as their input you know they're going to be in a good position, but even the refiners are facing a massive oversupply problem as well. Isn't that right, Jason? Yeah. So it's a couple things, right? So refiners, um, this is this is interesting, right? This is one of the boring businesses in the oil and gas industry that's actually done pretty well for investors over the past five or six years, while the 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 oil field services industry and producers have just destroyed you know tens of billions of dollars in capital. Um, and, and the reason why is that these are these are kind of like steady as she goes businesses, you know, because typically. You know, um, gasoline demand, jet fuel demand—they're pretty constant, right? They they go up a little bit, you know, based on population growth and economic, you know, economic growth. Uh, but they're pretty steady as she goes industries, and they're relatively neutral in terms of oil prices go up, oil prices go down because it's an input for them. Uh, Brent crude, a major global benchmark, is is a major uh, is is gasoline prices tend to tend to be tied to Brent crude, so gas prices go up or down. Based on Brent crude going up or down, so it doesn't really affect the producers, right? Because they, their gasoline's cheaper to sell, well, oil's cheaper to buy. So, right? So that's that's the thing. And the thing that's really hurting them the most right now is these are very, very, very high fixed cost businesses. Running a refinery costs a tremendous amount of money, whether you're producing at 99% capacity or you're running at 59% capacity. The fixed costs don't necessarily flex. 
a substantial amount. So once the once their production, once their output that they're able to cap, they're able to sell drops below a certain level, immediately they're 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 they they go from cash cow business producing strong operating cash flows to losing money very very quickly. So their biggest problem right now is on the demand side that it that it has that it has come down so much. So we're going to see refiners struggle to make money. You know, as long as this, you know, again, gasoline consumption is down, you know, 40 plus percent in the U.S. That's that's a real problem for uh, for for refiners. So, you know, I think on the upside, as as demand starts to recover, this should be one of the industries that recovers a little more quickly because there's just not going to be as much um, um, refined product and storage as you're going to see with oil. So those so that stored refined product will be consumed quicker. And demand will pick up for them to need to increase increase their output. And I think that's probably when a lot of the refiners will really shine. Phillips 66 is one that, that I've bought. Uh, and it's kind of keeps bubbling up as like my one oil stock that I'm consistently saying, you know, this is a good company to buy. Um, because the, you have a company like Phillips 66 with really good refineries that can, can, can take various different grades of crude. Um, and it's a refiner that's in a position that can buy crudes that it might be able to get cheaper um, than the benchmarks that affect gasoline prices a little bit more. So it has the ability to make a little bit better margins uh, more quickly than some of the other uh, some of the other uh, refiners. So I think these are the if you're looking for a business uh, in the oil industry to invest. Number one, I think the best thing to do right now is to look for signs of an economic recovery, like a sustained economic recovery. And then wait a little bit longer to see some of this inventory work through. I think refiners are going to prove to be one of the one of the areas that you're going to be able to get the best meaningful returns once we kind of figure out how quickly the economy is going to start growing. Yeah, so just on, on the demand side, you know, to your point, uh, refineries just because of the decline in demand have you know cut some of their their runs. I think I saw, I saw some data from the AAA uh, that said. Refinery rates had dipped to 69%, which was a level that they hadn't seen in more than a decade. So when there's less demand on on the end products for refiners, they're not just going to be refining a bunch of product, you know, a bunch of jet fuel to sell to planes that aren't aren't flying. So they're in a, a situation where they're having to cut production as well, and so they're not in a position to take huge, massive advantage uh, of the, these lower oil prices. However, coming out of the back end, they they will, will probably be better positioned than these EMPs that, you know, a lot of those will probably be bankrupt. Um, yeah. You know, the the <laughs> refiners it. will still be around. Well, and refiners typically, so, I mean, your, your average, you know, independent Permian focused shale uh, or other unconventional uh, independent oil producer, the, these these poor companies, so many of them, they don't even carry, you know, 90 days worth of, of operating cash on their books. You know, they're so dependent on getting steady cash flows and they have, you know, uh, so many of them have so much leverage that very few are built to, to, to last in this kind of an environment. But most refiners tend to tend to carry more cash. They, they a lot of them already have, you know, they have good revolving credit because typically what they'll end up having to do is that they, they go through these periods where they, you know, they go into maintenance where they'll shut, shut down parts of the refinery to do upkeep and capital improvements and that sort of thing. And a lot of times they'll use revolving credit facilities to, to bridge that gap until cash flows kick back up and then they can pay those revolving credit facilities down. So a lot of refiners are already built because of just kind of how their business model works, that they have access to liquidity that's going to serve them really well when so many independent producers simply don't. They don't, they, they don't have cash. They're already leveraged, and nobody's going to lend them money. There's no lifelines that are going to be coming out from any of the banks. So, yeah, so I, I kind of like this space. Uh, I'm not ready yet, uh, but I do like the space. 
one kind of follow on from there when we we talk about a lot of these oil related US EMPs probably and uh, you know when you look at their balance sheets probably many of them are going to go under or at least have to sell off a bunch of assets just really batten down the hatches and if if you remove a lot of that a lot of those if you if you you know envision a future where you remove a lot of those companies and their production off the market not only are these companies producing oil but many of them are producing a significant portion of their production being associated natural gas, natural gas liquids, all that sort of thing. And if you look at the natural gas market in the U.S., prices have been through the floor for years and years and years, partially due to this, this massive oversupply to, to the associated gas. But when you see, you know, envision a future where a lot of these folks go bankrupt, does this create an environment where more natural gas-focused producers might have more breathing space to succeed. Is that a thesis you believe in? And if 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 you know, what what are your thoughts there? So number one, yeah, I agree completely that this is going to be a positive catalyst uh, for gas prices. It already has been. You know, I think you know gas prices are up, you know, definitely double digits over the past couple of months. Um, so, so that's already happened. I, I just to throw some some stats out there. I can't, I can't. Some the Bakken, which is as you get up into the Dakotas, uh, something like nineteen percent of the natural gas that was produced out of the Bakken last year was was flared. Uh, means it was actually burned off at the at the well. Uh, there's so much gas that comes up that they can't even can't even get rid of it all. Right? They can't even sell it because there's the the market has been pushed down so low. Uh, that in certain areas, the, 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 the answer has been flared off and burn it. So it's not as bad as a greenhouse gas versus just letting it escape. Um, and that's cheaper than building pipelines to get to try to capture some of that gas. So, so yeah, so it's, it's I mean, it, it's, it's going to help with the glut uh, in, in the short term. But here's the other flip side where I'm not, I'm not convinced that this is going to be a, a saving grace for uh, a lot of the gas producers. And the thing that I think is going to prevent it from really being a saving grace is we're going to see a massive, massive delay in liquefied natural gas export projects, um, which the industry has been counting on as kind of being uh, the savior for a lot of, a lot of um, uh, gas, associated gas, but also just gas that's a little bit on the, on the, on the cusp of being profitable. Um, but the bottom line is that these, there's still going to be demand for natural gas in a lot of places in the world, but a lot of these facilities were going to be paid for from profits and cash flows from oil, right? So Shell, I know Shell recently uh, stepped away from a, a project um, that uh, it was working with um, one of the midstream companies on somewhere in Louisiana. And I know that um, we saw with uh, Tellurian, the startup um, that uh, Sharif Suki, the the founder of, of, of um, um, you're going to have to help, Shanir Energy, the founder, it's his startup. Uh, they, they had a major uh, Indian oil company kind of walk away from a deal with them um, before things went, went bad. So, I mean, I think we're going to see, you know, probably $100 billion of capital that was going to flow into these facilities over the next two or three years that's probably not going to flow in now just because uh, oil is so upside down. Um, so I think to me that kind of that kind of blows up the thesis that this is going to be that this is going to make any of these independent gas focused producers really necessarily investable. Um, I, ju I just think it's, it's just there's still too much risk and it's still kind of in the too hard pile um, based on the way that the, the 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 fundamentals have just changed completely for the uh, for the export side of the business.
that's an interesting thing I hadn't thought about, right? So, so that's a, that's a good point. Of if you increase the prices of natural gas in North America as you as you pull some of this associated gas supply off the market, then that reduces the spread between U.S. natural gas prices and foreign natural gas prices, which those export terminals would capture that spread as part of their operations, as well as you're taking away some of the the oil capital that would fund the project in the first place. So it's kind of a, a one-two punch there, if you think about it, of, of it takes away, as it pushes up natural gas prices, it hurts the spread that those those facilities could make, as well as hurts the upfront capital that would be needed to invest in in the facilities as well. Uh, it just goes to show in all, and basically across the energy market, these are very complex industries with lots of moving parts. And just when you change one factor, one place, there could be a, numer- a numerous number of, of consequences down the line that are really difficult to parse out on day one. Yeah, I think between Tellurian and the next decade is another startup that's kind of in that that same Gulf, Gulf Coast area. These two were really, really going to, a big part of their thesis was going to be actually associated gas, uh, because associated gas is something that was, I mean, there, there's, there's Permian oil producers that, that uh, would just about give it away, right? Um, yeah, you you build the infrastructure, you can have all the gas, you know, kind of thing, um, and it's just it's turned it's turned the thesis completely upside down. So um, yeah, I, I think it's 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 a bit heartbreaking, um, but you know, I just think it's it's kind of the reality right now, and it's certainly in that it's it's we don't have enough information to really know, uh, but you just follow the strings, and and that's you know it just it doesn't it doesn't look really necessarily that good. Yeah, I know. I've, I've personally sold my Tellurian stake. I, I just think it, it's 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 tough to see through the dark clouds. And I think with, with a lot of the sell-off that we had in the past month or so, there were some other opportunities I liked better. But I think that there's still certainly potential there for them. But it, it's definitely the seas have gotten much more uh, choppy in the last month or so, for sure. Yeah, I, I still I still believe in the management team. And I called out, you know, a couple of years ago when I really started following the business closely, I said, look, here's the here's the big risk for these kind of businesses is, is essentially, the, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be living off the generosity of others. Uh, they're going to have to do massive capital raises. You know, we're talking th- almost $30 billion for Tellurian, uh, a little bit less for next decade. And I, I called out, I said, look, there, there's there's there. The, the thing that concerns me the most is unexpected macroeconomic events that you know cause the, the the change the capital markets in some way to prevent them from being able to get access to capital and um, obviously I wasn't predicting a global pandemic um, but I mean that's that's exactly that worst case scenario is what's unfolded but I do think if there's a management team that can pull it off um, uh, you know the, the folks at Tellurian I think they've got some of the best people in the industry it's just whether they're going to have enough to bridge them and they can come up with a new plan for something smaller maybe uh, where they can get a little bit of capital to build something to start generating some revenue um, but it's um, yeah it's 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 again it's 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 just it's it's kind of a mess right now sure so so that's a lot of high level thoughts I think for, from Jason and I on what's going on in the oil market right now craziness with, with oil going negative Lots of implications down the line for refiners, storage companies, these export companies we've discussed a lot on the show. Kind of bringing it all back, zooming zooming out high level, though, again, Jason, for folks that are interested in oil right now, I know there's a lot of retail investors. You mentioned the folks you know, piling into USO, a lot of folks that are wanting to kind of buy the, the big sell-offs in a lot of these companies. What advice do you have folks who are interested in investing in oil and gas right now? What, they, what should they be doing? So first thing, I'm looking at uh, at uh, 
West Texas crude futures right now, and futures only represent part of the oil market. There's a lot of private sales directly to refiners and that sort of thing that the producers live off of that don't have anything to do with the spot prices. But you have to get all the way to February of 2021 before the before any futures um, are trading above thirty dollars a barrel. Um, thirty dollars a barrel doesn't pay the bills for uh, almost. I would say ninety five percent of U.S. shale or other, uh, so you start getting up into Canada, you start getting into some of the, the, the tar sands, oil sands, uh, $30 a barrel is not, is not, is not paying anybody's bills. And that's, that's where it's still trading going, uh, you know, all the way into early next year. So the takeaway from there is the closer a company is to the oil well, the, 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 the more risk you're looking at taking on. So you look at independent producers uh, with few exceptions. I, I, I think the space is a minefield to be avoided. You think about the oil services companies, the companies that, uh, that do the picks and shovels work in the oil field. Um, again, I think that's going to be one of the worst businesses to be in for at least a year um, because there's just going to be so much uh, supply still on the market. Um, but then as you start to get a little bit further away, and then you start talking about diversified businesses. So you look at your Royal Dutch Shell, uh, which you know has you know fifteen billion dollars in cash on the books, a great petrochemicals business, a great natural gas business that's far more stable than than where oil is right now. Those things will help offset the risks that it has in its oil production business a little bit and its refining business. Um, and it, it has the capital to to make it through. Phillips sixty six, you know, it has a great petrochemicals business, a great midstream natural gas business, a great net refining business that's primed to rebound earlier in the in the in the economic recovery than anybody on the other side. So I think in general, um, I think there's still probably better better uh, industries to invest in with far less risk. They may not have the pure upside potential if you get lucky and buy the right company that completely survives and and fully recovers. But the other big risk that I think investors have to have to stare you know squarely in the eye is that we don't know what the recovery is going to look like for oil demand. You know we don't know. You know we spend months and months and months. Businesses find these other ways to for to deploy their staff. Companies decide business travel isn't as as necessary. You know, technology has gotten a lot better to be able to engage and interact. I was on a, a Zoom call with a couple of guys in Dublin, Ireland today, this morning, a couple of investors uh, that I know there that have talked about how they uh, see a future where business travel uh, takes a major hit from the proliferation of tools like Zoom and Slack that are far more engaging and more powerful than anything that people tried to use for virtual travel in the past. So I think there's some very real implications for what a fully recovered oil industry looks like. May not look like the oil industry that we saw at the end of 2019, right? So I think those are things that you also have to consider. So it's not just looking at a ticker that's dropped 60% and saying, well, that goes up, I'm going to make 130%, right? That's because it may not go back up because we don't know what the what the business environment for the oil industry is going to look like. And when we fast forward three or four years, five years from now, what a fully recovered oil industry looks like. So I, I think that's 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 why, as, as in general, I, I don't think it's necessarily the best place to invest, even though it's certainly still one of the hardest hit major industries that has fingers in every part of everybody's life. Yeah, Jason, I, I agree with you uh, completely. Just to kind of take what you just said and put it into a, a short, pithy statement, I guess. I, I think a lot of... Uh, the argument you hear of folks, oh, well, the stock is off 60%, it's off 80%. Well, if it just pops back, 
you know, I'm going to make a whole bunch of money. And implicit in that statement or that thesis is to say that the stock market has overreacted to what's going on with these businesses and that they've sold off too much relative to what's actually going on with them. And given what you, what you said about $30 oil for at least the next year in a business that is is had shaky balance sheets even leading into this, I would put forth the argument that the market has not reacted enough to how dire the situation is for a lot of these companies. Would you agree or disagree with that? Oh, I, I definitely agree. I think that the, the idea that the industry needs to be bailed out uh, is, is, is a misnomer. The assets are valuable, uh, but you don't need the same stock ticker to, to run those assets. Uh, that's, I mean, that's the bottom line. So I agree a hundred percent. I'm buying on selling. <laughs> well, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, as always, uh, if folks want to, you know, find your, find your work, where can they, where can they track you down on Twitter or elsewhere? So I am at TMF as in the Motley Fool at TMF Velvet Hammer. And I tend to share most of my work, but um, if you just uh, do a Google search for Jason Hall, the Motley Fool, uh, you're going to find me, and you're going to find out a lot more about the oil and gas industry than you maybe want to know. And um, you'll probably also find some other good ideas of where to invest that are not in oil and gas stocks. Yes, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, I'm sure. I've been trying to get away from, from all these oil topics, but heck, every week something that has never happened before <laughs> happens again. And you know what? we got to talk about that when, that when history is made, don't you know? Yep. Jason, thanks for coming on. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on. Mm-hmm.